Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Absite Smackdown Podcast, and today we'll be reviewing colorectal for the Absite. Let's start off with the fact that development begins during the fourth gestational week for the colorectal tract. And except for the distal anal canal from ectoderm, the colon is endoderm. That dentate line is the dividing line between the ectodermal and endodermal uh, portion of the colorectal tract. Remember that the right colon and proximal transverse colon, about two-thirds, are superior mesenteric artery supplied, and those derived from mid-gut. The distal one-third of the transverse colon, the left colon, the sigmoid colon, and the proximal portion of the rectum are inferior mesenteric arteries supplied, and those come from the hindgut. Remember important anatomic facts, like the marginal artery of Drummond, and that runs along the colon at its margin. It's a collateral that connects portions of the IMA and SMA. The arc of Riolan is also direct short connections. Uh, that is another connector, and it connects uh, IMA and SMA. There are certain key watershed areas where hypotension can cause ischemia. These include Griffith's Point, which is at the splenic flexure, and that's an area where neither the SMA or IMA really supply blood uh, so well. It's a watershed area. Again, when a patient's hypotensive, you can see ischemia and or necrosis there. And then there's Sudix Point. Uh, Sudix Point's at the rectum, rectosigmoid area. It's the area where the superior rectal and middle rectal artery uh, don't uh, deliver uh, great blood supply. The urogenital sinus is another important consideration, and that's uh, divided from the rectum during development. It occurs by urorectal septum formation. While the sigmoid and transverse colon are intraperitoneal, the right and left colon are retroperitoneal. Then there are certain physiologic facts that the absite tests routinely, uh, like the preferred fuel of the colonocyte, and that's butyrate, uh, fatty acid. The main nutrient of colonocytes is short-chain fatty acids. The colon absorbs water up to 5 liters a day, but again, remember, the small bowel absorbs most of the water that's absorbed. And the colon secretes potassium and reabsorbs sodium and water. There are four histologic layers, superficial to deep, and these include the serosa, the muscularis propria, this circular muscle layer, the submucosa, and the mucosa, columnar epithelium, makes up that mucosa. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at absitesmackdown.com. The plicae semilunares go to form haustra, and the plicae are those transverse bands along the colon. Remember, the colon actively absorbs sodium chloride, and it does secrete potassium. Bacteria in the colon go to produce uh, ammonia and uh, fatty acids. Then there are gross anatomic layers of the colon. Here we are, superficial to deep. Uh, we discussed some of these, but we'll get a little more specific now. The serosa stops at the level of the peritoneal reflection, which is low to mid-rectum. Then there's that outer longitudinal muscle. And in the rectum, the longitudinal muscle represents the entire circumference of the bowel. 
Elsewhere, the longitudinal muscle comprises the tinea coli, and those coalesce at the base of the appendix. You can use the coming together of the tinea coli to find the base of the appendix, and more distally, they splay outward as you get toward the distal sigmoid. Again, in the rectum, they demonstrate, they comprise uh, the entire circumference of the bowel, or they encompass it. So that's a marker for when you're at about the level of the rectum. The tinea coli are three muscular bands uh, that run longitudinally along the colon. At the junction of the rectum and sigmoid, like we said, they broaden and encompass the circumference of the bowel. Next layer is this inner circular muscle, and it forms the uh, internal anal sphincter at the level of the anal canal, and that internal sphincter is involuntary. Next up, we have the submucosa, and finally the mucosa, which includes epithelium, lamina propria, and muscularis mucosa. Unlike the internal anal sphincter, the external anal sphincter is voluntary. It's comprised of striated muscle. It is contiguous with the levator ani muscle. There are some fascial layers, they're called fascia, near the colon, and these get unique names. There's, for example, Waldeyer's fascia. That attaches to the presacral fascia. It attaches to the fascia propria of the mesorectum anteriorly. Then there's de Nonvilliers' fascia. And in males, that separates the rectum from the seminal vesicles and the prostate. In females, it separates the rectum from the vagina. Then there's presacral fascia, and that has a venous plexus that covers up the venous plexus in the presacral area. There are important differences between the colon and the small bowel. For example, the colon has haustra, like we said. Unlike plicae circulares, the haustra, unlike plicae circulares of the small bowel, the haustra are not circumferential. The colon has appendices epiploicae, these uh, fatty appendices that hang off of it. The colon has the outer longitudinal muscle tinea coli. It has intestinal glands, such as crypts of Lieberkuhn, which are deeper than those of the small bowels. The colon lacks villi, and the small bowel has substantial villi, which improve surface area, absorptive area for the small bowel. The vascular supply we spoke about recently, but just to review, the colon's vascular supply includes the SMA and IMA. Uh, they supply the uh, midgut and hindgut regions that we listed above, respectively. The middle hemorrhoidal artery comes from the iliacs, and that supplies a portion of the rectum. And then there's the inferior hemorrhoidal artery, and that comes from the pudendal arteries. It supplies inferiormost portion of the rectum. Again, there's a watershed area at the splenic flexure, and in contrast, the superior, middle, and inferior rectal arteries supply the rectum substantially, so ischemia is a lot less likely there. The marginal artery of Drummond connects branches that supply the colon, as we discussed. Now, the internal anal sphincter is important, and that's innervated by sympathetic and parasympathetics. The external anal sphincter, again, is innervated via a branch of the pudendal, the inferior rectal nerve. So, again, the external sphincter is under conscious control. The rectal anal reflex occurs when feces reach the rectum. The internal anal sphincter and pelvic floor relax. The external anal sphincter contracts, and feces approach the anus and anoderm. Now let's transition to acute appendicitis.
Acute appendicitis is more common in men. That's typically seen the second to fourth decade. It affects approximately 7% of the population. It's due to occlusion of the appendiceal lumen, which is most commonly due to lymphoid hyperplasia, but other causes include fecalith and tumor. In adult patients, the incidence of tumor significantly increases, but it's still less common than lymphoid hyperplasia. And this is why appendicitis in older people should increase clinical suspicion of an underlying malignancy. Again, being an older person does not mean that a malignancy of the appendix is the most common. However, it does mean on the list of causes that it goes way, that a tumor goes way up on the list. So even in older people, appendiceal tumor is not the most common reason for appendicitis. However, the chance that it is an appendiceal tumor does go way up. In elderly patients, pregnant patients, children under five years of age, these all present late. Uh, and that's typically owing to atypical symptoms, which are not appreciated initially as appendicitis. A high-grade fever, a symptom onset greater than 24 hours previously, or generalized peritonitis should increase clinical suspicion for perforation. Uh, similarly, a history where pain became intense and then remitted uh, should increase suspicion for perforation. Notice that elderly patients, again, who present late, are typically more commonly perforated at presentation. Classic history, often not seen in the elderly, includes uh, early on nonspecific abdominal discomfort, nausea, fever, anorexia, and later a periumbilical pain uh, that shifts to the right upper quadrant even later at McBurney's point. So again, elderly patients typically do not have this classic history of early pain uh, that is nonspecific, uh, and then later pain that goes from the uh, periumbilical area to the right lower quadrant. Sometimes pain may be demonstrated in the right lower quadrant by palpation of the left lower quadrant, and that's called Rovzing sign. Or with hip flexion, you may be able to demonstrate pain in the right lower quadrant, that's psoas sign. Or with internally rotating the right leg, you may be able to elicit pain in the right lower quadrant, and that's obturator sign. Lab tests may or may not demonstrate a mild leukocytosis with or without a left shift, and CT scans are often used in addition to the exam, owing to approximately a 95% sensitivity. The classic findings on CT include enlarged appendix with enhancement greater than 6 millimeters, fecalith, wall thickening, fat stranding, and ultrasound may be useful, especially in children and pregnant women, given uh, the desire sometimes to decrease radiation exposure. However, ultrasound is felt to be less sensitive than CT in uh, most, uh, in many centers. MRI is especially useful in pregnant women to assist in diagnosing appendicitis in order to minimize radiation effects. If there's a phlegmon or abscess, uh, typically the advice is to delay resection, give antibiotics, and perform an interval appendectomy. Approximately 15% negative appendectomy rate, despite current uh, advances, is considered uh, routine. And the treatment, of course, for appendicitis in general is appendectomy, uh, given what we talked about before for patients who are perforated or have other conditions. Again, you may use the tinea coli to locate the base of the appendix. They will come together and coalesce over the base of the appendix. Let's talk about carcinoid, which comes up all the time on the abcite. It's the most common malignancy of the appendix. About 90% or more of cases are at the appendix or the distal ileum, and it's from enterochromaffin cells. 
It's usually found incidentally with appendectomy. And it may be found with an obstruction, too, or pain. And if you happen to suspect it, confirm with serum and urine serotonin or chromogranin A. Octreotide may localize, and the pathology uh, may show a stain positive for chromogranin A as well. However, as mentioned, this is usually found incidentally. Only about 10% of cases or less are associated with carcinoid syndrome. Most are less than 2 centimeters and near the appendiceal tip. However, again, if the base is involved, the treatment is a right hemicolectomy, no matter what size, no matter what size the carcinoid is. If it's over 2 centimeters and the base is uninvolved, it needs right hemicolectomy. If there are no mets to the liver, no matter what size, oh, if there are mets to the liver, rather, no matter what size and whether or not it involves base, base of the appendix, patient needs a right hemicolectomy. So really the only one where there's a limited resection are lesions less than two centimeters where the base is not involved. You may uh, resect hepatic metastases or debulk if present, and octreotide is used to treat symptoms if there are metastases. Streptozosin, doxorubicin, those are used as chemotherapy for palliation if they're unresectable mets. Next, let's talk about tiflitis. Uh, this may masquerade as appendicitis, and it's a neutropenic enterocolitis that affects the terminal ilium, the cecum, and the right colon. When a patient has leukemia or is immunosuppressed, like HIV, chemotherapy, transplantation, consider this diagnosis, and it presents as diarrhea, fever, emesis, right lower quadrant pain. And it may be useful to calculate the absolute neutrophil count. Treatment is medical, typically, not surgical, and includes a nasogastric tube, NPO status, IV fluid, and antibiotics. You may treat the low uh, absolute neutrophil count with a neupogen to raise that. Whether the patient has had previous surgery or has not had previous surgery, uh, we're going to move on <laughs> First, we're going to move on to large bowel obstruction. Let me start there. And then I'll tell you that whether the patient had previous surgery or has not had previous surgery, the most common cause of large bowel obstruction is cancer. And this is different than small bowel obstruction patients. Remember, if these patients present obstructed, it may be very challenging to get them home. Uh, one um, attending uh, staff with whom I work used to have a rule, and I call that Trossel's rule, and that's don't let a patient with any question of large bowel obstruction leave the hospital without an operation unless it's a pseudo-obstruction due to Ogilvy's. Don't just see them in the ER and discharge them with a partial colonic obstruction, etc. And the reason why is it took a long time to get there. These don't open up. They're different than small bowel obstructions or small bowel, partial small bowel obstructions. They may be very challenging to prep. Uh, stool is uh, more formed than the succus you see proximally that kind of gets through a more narrow small bowel area. So large bowel obstructions are a different beast, and it's important to keep that in mind. And that Trossel's rule uh, helps, um, helps me remember that. Large bowel obstructions represent about 15% of intestinal obstruction cases. And other causes include diverticulitis with stricture, volvulus, impaction, post-op adhesions, hernias, and pseudo-obstructions, like we said. Emesis is typically a later finding, uh, especially when there's a presence of an ileocecal valve. Lab tests may be nonspecific. A dilated colon without air in the rectum suggests mechanical obstruction, while the presence of air in the rectum suggests a pseudo-obstruction. 
CT imaging here is very useful to make the diagnosis, and the treatment is to fluid resuscitate, nasogastric tube decompression, collect, uh, correct electrolytes, uh, and try to optimize the patient prior to any further in intervention. Of course, the patient will typically be staged if, uh, and uh, get a, uh, a true diagnosis of uh, uh, cancer or a lesion. Um, patient may have a preparation and undergo colonoscopy if possible. Uh, but the bottom line is um, large bowel obstructions are not the same as small bowel obstructions. So unlike small bowel obstruction, where nasogastric tube and weight is often the first-line treatment, typically surgical intervention is the first-line treatment for large bowel obstruction. That's whether or not there's a known cancer present. Unless it's due to Ogilvy's, large bowel obstruction requires an operation. Uh, not necessarily an emergent procedure, depending on patient condition, but generally on the same hospital stay. Now for pseudo-obstruction and Ogilvy syndrome, decompression and neostigmine are often utilized. The mortality rate for patients with a large bowel obstruction is approximately 20%. Next, let's talk about specific large bowel obstruction issues like volvulus. Volvulus is a cause of about 5% of large bowel obstructions. It's a closed-loop obstruction uh, due to a twisting of the bowel, more than 180 degrees on its mesentery, and that results in obstruction at two locations that are included right where the bowel twists on itself. Risk factors include being bedridden, chronic constipation, megacolon, pregnancy, a redundant segment of bowel, and this is typically seen in patients who are over 70 years old. There are certain terms that come up a lot when it comes to volvulus, certain subtypes, uh, as they relate to the cecum. One is cecal bascule. And that's the folding of the cecum anteromedially on itself. Uh, then there's cecal volvulus. And that happens when the cecum rotates around the ileocolic vessels uh, and is ischemic owing to a twisting of a mesentery. Volvulus may and often does result in ischemia. Abdominal pain and hemodynamic instability can be seen along with it. And the classic sign of sigmoid volvulus on x-ray is what's called a bent inner tube sign, or narrowing into a bird's beak sign. Another description often used is coffee bean appearance, which can be seen on x-ray in patients with cecal volvulus. Looks like a coffee bean. If you have a patient with a non-strangulated, so uh, it may be uh, uh, ischemic, but uh, it's detorsed and it's clearly viable, um, you can perform an endoscopic decompression if you're confident the patient has a, let me rephrase that, if you're confident the patient has a non-strangulated sigmoid volvulus, that can be very difficult to determine. Those patients are candidates for endoscopic decompression with placement of a rectal tube. Even if there's a successful reduction, surgery is typically indicated to avoid recurrence. The patient can tolerate it. Again, this depends on you know, patient age, medical comorbidities, host of things. Urgent surgical intervention should be performed for sigmoid volvulus if there's any question of strangulation. Sequel volvulus requires, again, emergency surgery, which may include a cecopexy or a right hemicolectomy at the discretion of the surgeon. Cecostomy is also an option, but it does carry a high risk of recurrence and is performed in select patients only. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Bringing you the best for your absite review. Next, let's talk about diverticulae. 
These are the most common disease of the colon, and greater than 90% of the time, these affect the sigmoid colon of geriatric patients. Obesity, low fiber diet, tobacco use, constipation, and sedentary lifestyle are all risk factors. This occurs doing to, uh, owing to herniation of the mucosa at weak areas in the muscularis externa, areas where blood vessels enter and leave are congenital weak spots, and some of those uh, weak areas are where herniation occurs of the mucosa. Diverticulosis is present, just presence of those lesions with no inflammation. Diverticulitis is when the inflammation is present in those diverticuli, and that's often doing, uh, due to a microperforation. Complications include frank perforation, stricture, more long-term, obstruction, or gross perforation. Diverticulosis may bleed and present as bright red blood per rectum. The old line is osis bleeds, itis perfs. So diverticulosis gives GI bleeding. Diverticulitis typically causes lower quadrant pain with associated leukocytosis and fever. White blood cell count here is nonspecific. CT scan is useful to demonstrate whether diverticulitis, diverticulosis, or a related complication is present. For diverticulosis, uh, this is uh, sometimes improved with a high-fiber diet. Uh, by improved, I, I should say prevented. And this ble uh, bleeds with respect to diverticulosis. GI bleeds usually resolve spontaneously, but do require surgery if they persist or recur, or the patient uh, requires substantial ongoing transfusion. Diverticulitis is typically treated with bowel rest and oral antibiotics. So diverticulosis may be treated with high-fiber diet, weight loss. Diverticulitis is more often treated with uh, bowel rest and oral antibiotics. If there's an abscess present, uh, that is typically drained. And emergent procedure uh, is performed if there's perforation and significant free air. Hartman's procedure is resection of the disease portion of the colon, the proximal extent of that is the level of induration, the thickened uh, diverticuli, not all diverticuli. So again, Hartman's procedure is resection of diseased portion of the colon with the proximal margin that we talked about, abdominal lavage, and an end colostomy. So again, one more time, the proximal extent of colonic resection in a Hartman's is the level of induration, not all of portions of the colon that demonstrate diverticuli. Perforation with abscess is often amenable to percutaneous drainage. And if there is an episode of complicated diverticulitis, meaning there's an abscess, something similar, elective resection at a later date is indicated. Other indications to operate include a young patient, because they'll likely have many more episodes, immunosuppressed patients, or uh, patients after typically two attacks, or patients going to a very isolated area where they won't be able to be treated if they have an attack. Next, let's talk about lower GI bleed. When you see blood per rectum, remember uh, that an upper GI bleed is the most common cause of a lower GI bleed. The lower GI bleed is more common in men. Average age at diagnosis is 60s to late 70s, and lower GI bleeding is defined as bleeding distal to the ligament of trites. Angiodysplasia, diverticulosis, Meckel's, ischemia, inflammatory bowel disease, infection like E. coli or C. diff, cancer, or hemorrhoids are all potential causes for GI bleeding. 
lower GI bleed usually stops spontaneously. Now, transfusion of more than six units PRBCs within the first 24 hours of stay predicts the need for operative intervention. Now, remember, a nasogastric tube is one of the first steps to localize a GI bleed to either an upper bleed, proximal ligament atrites, or lower GI bleed, distal ligament atrites. An NG tube is negative for upper GI, uh, for an upper GI bleed, when it demonstrates not only no blood, but when it does demonstrate bile. This is because an NG tube that does not demonstrate blood does not necessarily see the first and second portion of the duodenum after the pylorus and the area of the duodenum before the ligament atrites. So the requirement for a truly negative NG tube is return of bile with no blood, uh, a negative NG tube for upper GI bleed. And even when an NG tube is truly negative, it's not a perfect test to rule out an upper GI bleed. If the nasogastric tube is positive for upper GI bleed, perform an EGD, establish the source, and treat as appropriate. Of course, this includes resuscitating the patient, etc., for significant GI bleeds, for GI bleeds in general, adequate IV access, Foley catheter, etc. If the nasogastric tube does not demonstrate upper GI bleed, perform a colonoscopy. If the source is visualized, may be injected. If it's not visualized, and if it's a fast bleed, fast bleed means more than one milliliter per minute, perform angiography with angioembolization. That both localizes and treats the disease. How do we figure out whether the bleed is more than a milliliter a minute? We look at the patient's hemoglobin and how long it took to drop and whether we transfused and how much transfusion increased the hemoglobin. Because remember, in general, 250 milliliters of blood is, will raise uh, your hemoglobin one uh, milligram per deciliter. So if we gave blood and the hemoglobin did not change at all, and we gave that blood over an hour and we checked the hemoglobin before and after, and it didn't change at all, the patient lost about 250 milliliters in an hour. These ideas can be useful because it takes a very little bit of blood to make the water in a toilet look red, and it also takes very little blood to make stool look uh, red and also uh, become uh, loose. If a GI source is not visualized and if there's no fast bleed, so it's a bleed less than one milliliter per minute, perform a tagged red cell scan to localize. And if severe bleeding is present and you, it's so much bleeding that you're not able to see anything during colonoscopy, uh, again, angioembolization is a typical. If it's a fast bleed, and if it's not a fast bleed, again, tagged red cell scan. It is similar to the uh, uh, visualized portion that we talked about, uh, or the previous portion, where we uh, said if there is a source visualized, you know, go ahead and do injection and thermal therapy, um, etc. Bottom line is fast bleed angiography. If bleeding is uncontrolled after angioembolization is attempted, the patient requires surgical intervention. If bleeding is controlled, but there's no colonic source, uh, that's when we evaluate the small bowel with capsule endoscopy or a similar technique like push enteroscopy. Next, let's talk about inflammatory bowel disease. Inflammatory bowel disease specifically refers, in, in general, uh, to Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. The underlying causes for each are not really clear, 
but both do share extra-intestinal manifestations. Primary sclerosis and cholangitis is one of them, and that's typically seen more commonly with ulcerative colitis, erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, sacroiliitis, arthritis, uveitis and scleritis, pericarditis, and ankylosing spondylitis are all extraintestinal manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease. Patients with inflammatory bowel disease require annual colonoscopies starting after the disease has been present for 8 to 10 years owing to the risk of colon cancer. Next, let's talk about specifics of each one, and we'll start with ulcerative colitis. This typically affects patients in the third or seventh decade. About 10 per 100,000 is the incidence. Ashkenazic uh, Jew, Ashkenazi uh, Jewish descent is a risk factor. And interestingly, tobacco seems to decrease risk. Diarrhea, blood per rectum, abdominal pain, and fever are symptoms. Colonoscopy with biopsy makes a diagnosis. The depth of involvement typically includes mucosa and submucosa. Involvement of the bowel wall is typically transmural. <clears throat> Path features include friable mucosa, cryptabscesses, pseudopolyps, and a continuous involvement of the bowel, uh, meaning there are no skip lesions. So the wall inflammation is transmural, and there are no skip lesions. Bleeding, toxic megacolon, fulmin, and ulcerative colitis, colorectal cancer, uh, and extraintestinal manifestations can be seen. And extraintestinal manifestations are many and include um, aphthous ulcer, iritis, uveitis, episcleritis, seronegative arthritis, ankylosing uh, spondylitis, sacroiliitis, athema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, DVT, and PE, interestingly, more common, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, clubbing, and primary sclerosis and cholangitis. Some extraintestinal manifestations seen with ulcerative colitis actually improve with colectomy, like anemia, arthritis, ocular issues. And some manifestations of ulcerative colitis do not get better with colectomy, like PSC, primary sclerosis and cholangitis, and alkalosing spondylitis. About half of pyoderma gangrenosum patients improve with colectomy. Treatment for an acute attack of, of ulcerative colitis includes steroids, 5-ASA, infliximab, cyclosporin for steroid refractory disease. Uh, there are options. <clears throat> Maintenance treatment for ulcerative colitis includes sulfazalazine or 5-ASA. It may also include 6-mercaptopurine or azathioprine. Subtotal colectomy or proctocolectomy with end ileostomy is performed if an emergent surgery is required in UC. So there's no pouches being made for an emergent colectomy for UC. A total proctocolectomy with iliopouch and anal anastomosis is the most common procedure if it's ulcerative colitis in a patient who is a candidate for an elective procedure. Again, uh, you, you also may, even in an elective procedure, opt for total proctocolectomy and permanent ileostomy. Next, let's talk about specifics of Crohn's disease. This is typically uh, has a bimodal uh, distribution. In other words, there are two peaks of uh, incidence throughout lifetime. That's the second and sixth decade. Affects around three per every 100,000 people. Again, Ashkenazi Jew, uh, Jewish descent is a risk factor. Tobacco increases risk here. And unlike ulcerative colitis in the colon, Crohn's can be seen anywhere along the GI tract, most commonly in the terminal ileum. Obstruction, abdominal pain, weight loss, diarrhea, bleeding may be seen. Colonoscopy and biopsy may give the diagnosis. 
Uh, if it's present in the small bowel, CT scan with oral contrast may be useful. Um, although the uh, bowel wall involvement is transmural, there are skip lesions typically seen. So it's discontinuous along the bowel. Non-caseating granulomas, fistulae, including perianal fistulae, cobblestoning, and strictures may be seen. Uh, toxic megacolon, small bowel cancers, colorectal cancer, and extra-intestinal manifestations can, uh, may be seen. Perianal disease is treated with flagell for Crohn's. And treatment for maintenance and acute attacks is similar uh, to what's done with ulcerative colitis. Elective surgical intervention involves resection of the disease portions of the bowel, and stricture plasty is used whenever possible to minimize bowel resection and the risk of short bowel syndrome. Next, let's talk about carcinoid of the colon and rectum. Uh, here, we're discussing about 15% of carcinoid tumors, and again, most common uh, carcinoid is in the appendix. There are low rectal carcinoids, high rectal carcinoids, and so let's talk about low rectal carcinoids. Uh, these, uh, if they're greater than two centimeters, treatment is wide excision with negative margins. If it's less than two centimeters or any size that is invasive, and invasion is related to the muscularis propria, so if there's uh, any size with invasion or less than two centimeters, uh, perform an APR. Colonic or high rectal carcinoids, one's up in the colon, if they're greater than one centimeter, treatments or section, if they're less than one centimeter, you may perform a polypectomy. Another topic that comes up frequently is uh, genetic syndromes uh, and uh, that are associated with hamartomatous polyps. And here we have several putz jaeger Cowden syndrome, juvenile polyposis, and cronkite Canada syndrome. For putz jaeger it's autosomal dominant. The polyps are hamartomatous, as we said, and they typically occur in the ilium or jejunum. They may also be in the rectum. Interestingly, the mucosa around the mouth, the buccal mucosa, is hyperpigmented and has a distinct look. There's an increased risk of adenomatous degeneration and increased risk of extra-intestinal cancers, like breast, testis, or ovary, pancreas, and biliary cancers. Next up is Cowden syndrome. That's a P10 mutation. It's autosomal dominant. Shows GI polyps, lyomyomas of the uterus, breast and thyroid cancers, and mucocutaneous lesions. Juvenile polyposis is also autosomal dominant. So, so far, uh, Putz-Jaeger, Cowden's juvenile polyposis, all autosomal dominant. For juvenile polyposis, we see polyps throughout the GI tract, and the colorectal cancer risk is increased. Next up is Cronkite Canada syndrome. This is sporadic. You see dystrophic nails, hyperpigmentation, and alopecia. Next up is uh, specifics of colorectal cancer. This is uh, really important for the abscite. It comes up routinely. There's approximately equal incidence in men and women. And it's, this is the second leading cause of cancer death in the U.S. Age over 50 is a risk factor. History of colonic adenoma is a risk factor. Inflammatory bowel disease is a risk factor. Family history of colon cancer is a risk factor. And there are certain gene mutations like KRAS, P53, DCC, and APC uh, that are um, uh, significant risk factors. Adenomas are premalignant. Tubular adenomas are the most common. And villous adenomas have an increased risk of cancer uh, compared to tubulovillous and tubular. So the more villous the adenoma is, the more the cancer risk. 
Change in stool caliber, rectal bleeding and obstruction are some of many signs. An increased CEA level is sometimes seen. Digital rectal exam and fecal occult blood testing are useful. CT, colonoscopy, and barium enema are useful to make the diagnosis. And tools for staging include endoscopic ultrasound, MRI of pelvis, and CT scan. Resections for colon cancer should include at least 12 nodes to allow for correct staging. Now, treatment for rectal cancer is not the same as the treatment for colon cancer. It includes radiation and chemotherapy. Colon cancer receives chemo only. You do need colonoscopy for these patients. Complete colonoscopy is part of staging to be sure there's no synchronous lesion. Next up, we'll briefly talk about colorectal cancer uh, staging. And uh, here, a couple things bear mentioning. First off, in our Absite Smackdown review, uh, the uh, current edition, first edition, page 42 has the TNM staging. But what uh, you really need to know is that uh, tumor staging here, the T portion is based on invasiveness, not tumor size. T4s, there's an adjacent organ uh, invaded. T3 is the subserosa or non-peritonealized pericolic or pararectal tissue. Uh, so that pericolic or pararectal tissue is invaded. T2 is invasion of the muscularis propria. T1 is submucosa is invaded. And tumor in situ is the lesion does not invade the submucosa. The node portion of staging is generally related to the number of nodes involved. And N3 is a lymph node adjacent to a major vessel that's positive. But otherwise, an N2 is four or more nodes involved. Uh, the M portion is just yes or no. Uh, M1 is positive METs. Best for TNN status is actually transrectal ultrasound if the lesion is accessible. And uh, the stages uh, go with that TNM staging. Stage four is any tumor with or without nodes that has a positive metastasis. Stage three is any tumor with positive nodes but no metastasis. Stage uh, two is a T1 or T2, but no nodes, no METs. So basically, METs are stage four. Stage three is uh, nodes, but no METs. And then uh, stage one is tumor in situ, no nodes, no METs. So if you have a lesion of any size, uh, T1 or T2, uh, no METs, uh, no nodes, uh, you're a stage two. Uh, stage three, you have nodes, but no METs and stage four uh, METs with anything else. Remember the most common site for METs is the liver. If it's resectable, uh, there's an isolated five-year survival, about 35%. Lung METs, if they're isolated and resectable, about a 25% five-year survival rate. Uh, isolated liver or, or lung METs should receive resection. And remember, rectal cancer may metastasize to the spine directly, uh, directly there via Batson's plexus. That gets mentioned also in uh, breast cancer, uh, Batson's plexus, and metastases to the spine. There's also Duke's classification, and that's an alternative staging methodology. Uh, that's also available in the review book, but the headlines are uh, stage A, submucosal invasion, B, into the muscularis propria, no nodes, C is positive nodes, and D is presence of METs or invasion into adjacent structures. So very sim similar to the TNM uh, classification. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The 
the only AppSite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AppSiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Next up is HNPCC, or hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. The Amsterdam criteria are typically used here. This is also known as the 3-2-1 rule. And first, you have to confirm the tumor is not familial adenomatous polyposis by biopsy or testing. It's three or more relatives, including one first-degree relative, who has a known HNPCC. So three or more relatives, two or more generations affected in the family, and one or more affected patient who is less than 50. If they have that, that 3-2-1 rule, they have HNPCC. Then there are more colorectal cancer uh, syndromes, which we'll talk about. And uh, one of those is about, first, about 20% of patients with colon cancer have a family history of colon cancer. HNPCC, also known as Lynch syndrome, that we just talked about with those Amsterdam criteria, is due to mutations in DNA mismatch repair genes, uh, HMLH1 and HMSH2, Lifetime risk of colon cancer, 85%. Now, there are subtypes of hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer, a.k.a. Lynch syndrome. Lynch 1 leads to onset of colorectal cancer at a young age. Lynch 2 gives increased risk of GI malignancy like stomach, small bowel, pancreas, biliary, endometrial, and genital urinary tumors. In general, the recommendation is annual colonoscopy at 20 to 25 years or 10 years earlier, than the age at which the youngest family member was diagnosed with cancer. So if the youngest family member was diagnosed at 35, uh, it would be 25. If they were diagnosed at 19, it would be at 9, etc. For females with Lynch syndrome, screening recommendations include transvaginal ultrasound starting at 25 to 35 years or an annual endometrial biopsy owing to their risk of gynecologic cancer. Next up is Turcot's syndrome, another of the colon cancer hereditary syndromes, and this is due to an APC gene mutation on chromosome 5Q. There's an increased risk of colon cancer and brain tumors. Colonic adenomas are typically seen. Screening recommendations are same as for FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis, that we'll get to. And uh, let's talk about Gardner syndrome, and that's due to a an APC gene mutation on chromosome 5Q, similar to Turcos. It's increased risk of colon cancer with, uh, seen with desmoid tumors. There are also osteoid tumors, so bone tumors, and there are skin cysts. Colonic adenomas are seen. Screening is, this, is similar to familial adenomatous polyposis beneath, and we'll talk about that next. For FAP, uh, this is due to an APC gene mutation on chromosome 5Q. Colonic adenomas are seen, and there's a lifetime risk of colorectal cancer of 100%. There's an increased risk of multiple other tumors, like periampulary tumors, uh, thyroid tumors, and uh, adrenocortical tumors. So uh, you need to keep that in mind when you see these patients. Flexible sigmoidoscopy annually at 10 to 15 years old is a recommendation. Annual endoscopy for that upper uh, GI lesion, periampulary tumor, for example, each one to three years after age 25. So a patient with a large periampulary tumor, uh, remember FAP can cause this. The diagnosis of FAP requires surgery, and uh, the procedure chosen depends on whether the rectum is involved, 
whether there's cancer already present, and how old the patient is. Outcomes for resection in uh, FAP patients are similar to colorectal cancer cases that are not related to a hereditary syndrome if the resection is prophylactic in nature when performed. So in other words, if there's no tumor present and the resection is performed, outcome for FAP patients is similar to colorectal cancer, case, uh, colorectal cancer cases in non-FAP patients. Now, if cancer is present in an FAP patient, <clears throat> If the cancer is present in them, a subtotal colectomy or segmental colectomy is performed. A total abdominal hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-ophorectomy is often added in women who have Lynch 2, owing to the risk of eventual cancer in their reproductive organs. Otherwise, a total proctocolectomy with ileostomy, a total abdominal colectomy with ileorectal anastomosis, or total proctocolectomy with a J-pouch, an ileal uh, pouch anal anastomosis, is chosen. Now let's transition out of the colorectal cancer and talk about uh, uh, perianal disease, uh, and we'll specifically talk about how the most common causes of acute pain at the anus are external hemorrhoid thrombosis, uh, perianal abscesses, and anal fissure. Condyloma acuminata may be seen. This is due to the human papilloma virus, and treatment is fulguration with a laser or an alternative. And then for anal fissure, that's an ulcer or tear, which is distal to the dentate line, and that's a tear in the anoderm. It's typically posterior and in the midline. It may be related to insufficient fiber in the diet. Pain and bleeding with defecation can be seen. It's caused by a hypertonic internal anal sphincter. And at times, you may see a sentinel pile distal to the ulcer or the tear uh, in that anoderm. You may see hypertrophy of the anal papillae, proximally, and an exam makes the diagnosis. There may also be internal anal sphincter spasm. You should perform an endoscopy or anoscopy to rule out a more serious underlying condition. And the treatment includes stool softeners, nifedipine ointment, sits baths, especially when, uh, and when medical treatment fails, if it does fail, uh, the patient requires lateral internal anal sphincterotomy or an injection of Botox into the sphincter. Note that the lateral internal sphincterotomy may give incontinence. More about perianal disease, let's talk about hemorrhoids. And risk factors include things that increase intra-abdominal pressure like obesity, pregnancy, needing to strain with defecation. Common positions are left lateral, right anterior lateral, and right posterior lateral due to engorged anal submucosal cushions and not due to varicose veins. There are types, and these include internal and external hemorrhoids. Internal hemorrhoids are insensate, and they're also superior to the dentate line. That's why they don't hurt. And therefore, they are covered with columnar or transitional epithelium, and hemorrhoids are staged by the degree of prolapse. First stage is no prolapse. Second stage, spontaneously reducing prolapse. Third degree is a prolapse that requires a reduction. And fourth degree is a prolapse that cannot be reduced. External hemorrhoids are beneath the dentate line and are therefore squamous epithelial tissue covered. And uh, they are innervated in the innervated anoderm, and those hurt. They may be present as blood parectum, may cause bothersome swelling, and difficulties with hygiene in the area. Digital rectal exam, anoscopy, and sigmoidoscopy may help make the diagnosis. Remember to screen for colon cancer if the patient is less than 40 years old, 
unsym uh, unusual symptoms are noted, uh, or there's a family history of colon cancer. Treatment for these hemorrhoids includes sitz baths, stool softeners, increasing water and fiber intake, creams, and ointments. Now, many options for treatment exist if medical management fails, and those include rubber band ligation, sclerotherapy, hemorrhoidectomy. If large hemorrhoids or significant external component exists, uh, then you perform a surgical hemorrhoidectomy. You can do this in the office if there's an isolated thrombosis external hemorrhoid that presents less than four to five days from onset. Fiber and sitz baths may be used for patients who present later. Pyelonidal cyst is the next up for our anal rectal disease uh, talk, and these are infected hair-containing sinuses. They're usually seen in the gluteal cleft, but may also be seen on the hands of certain groups like hairstylists. They're usually seen in men, they're diagnosed on exam, and they're treated with incision and resection of the cyst lining, along with marsupialization or closure, one or several options. Next, let's talk about proctitis. Proctitis can be due to HPV, CMV, UC, Crohn's, radiation, C. diff, STDs. All of those can cause inflammation of the anorectum. Treatment's based on the underlying cause. Next up is anal fistula. This occurs between the anal canal and perianal skin. There are inter, trans, supra, or extra sphincteric classifications. They start as an abscess in a crypt gland of the dentate line, which becomes an intersphincteric abscess and then a perianal abscess. Most are idiopathic, but Crohn's may be a cause. Most are anterior or posterior, but lateral fistula are the ones you have to think about other causes in, like Crohn's, or less common causes like HIV or tuberculosis. This presents as drainage from an external opening, often in a location where there is a perianal abscess that just, quote, never healed. Goodsall's rule, or the dog rule, is that more anterior openings uh, go directly into the anal canal, straight in, like the nose of a dog. And posterior openings take a curved track, like uh, into the anal canal, like the tail of a dog. So dogs' noses are straight and their tails are curved, so Goodsall's rule sometimes gets called the dog rule. The treatment is fistulotomy. Uh, remember, incontinence is a potential complication if the sphincter is divided. So fistula that may involve the external sphincter often uh, receive a staged fistulotomy with a non-cutting ceton. Remember, Crohn's and malignancy may cause fistula. So be sure to consider those before treating anorectal complaints. Next up is, anal pro, uh, is rectal prolapse. And this is usually seen in women over 60 years old. The rectal wall protrudes through the anus and presents as incontinence, a vaginal or uterine prolapse, cystocele and teracele or constipation, or some mix of those. It's often associated with a weak pelvic floor. Now there's true prolapse or full thickness, which demonstrates circumferential mucosal folds. Then there's false prolapse, which is mucosa only, and that demonstrates radial folds. The rectum may become ischemic, which causes tenderness. That's rare. Colonoscopy or contrast enema should be performed to rule out an underlying lesion. For good operative candidates, lapar laparotomy and rectopexy, with or without sigmoid resection, is performed. And for other candidates, a rectosigmoidectomy via a perianal approach, or rather a perineal approach, that's the Altmeyer procedure. That can be performed, or Delormay's procedure, 
which is a perennial approach with resection of the mucosa and submucosa of the prolapse segment only. Last up is anal cancer. And uh, anal cancer is uh, usually squamous cell cancer from an HPV infection. Adenocarcinoma is only about 10% of cases, and its prognosis is worse. It's most common in young male patients who engage in receptive anal intercourse. HIV, Crohn's, Hodgkin's, herpes 2, HSV2, and STDs are other risk factors. may be asymptomatic or may demonstrate pain, pruritus, rectal bleeding, or anal fullness. Exam may reveal an anal mass with or without lymphadenopathy. Colonoscopy with biopsy reveals a diagnosis, and staging is performed with CT abdomen and pelvis. The NIGRO protocol, 5-FU and mitomycin with radiation, is used for larger lesions or anal canal lesions. Small lesions, or those on the uh, perianal skin, receive wide local excision. Uh, APR is used for recurrent or persistent disease after the treatments, after those treatments we talked about, and the five-year survival is about 60 to 70%. Rarely, you can see a basal cell cancer. The treatment is a wide local excision, if that's what the issue is, basal cell cancer, and only a three millimeter margin is needed. APR is rarely necessary, and that's typically only needed if the sphincter is involved. Last up, let's do some miscellaneous facts from colorectal. Okay, again, the external anal sphincter is under conscious control, and it comes from the puborectalis muscle. Again, the internal pudendal nerve is the innervation, and that's the inferior rectal branch. And the sphincter is actually a continuation of the levator ani muscle, which is striated. The internal anal sphincter, one more time, is innervated by the pelvic splanchnic nerves. Interestingly, its normal state is to be contracted. It is a continuation of the muscularis propria from the colon. Colonic inertia, that's significant slow transit time. Patients may need subtotal colectomy. Stump pouchitis, uh, aka diversion or disuse pouchitis, that's treated with short-chain uh, fatty acid enemas. Infectious pouchitis is treated with flagell. False positive guaiac or fecal occult blood screening can be seen with uh, several uh, things that patients are on routinely or have, uh, have received routinely, including cimetidine, uh, beef, vitamin C, or iron. Polypectomy is performed by colonoscopy and if, uh, among other options, but let's pretend a polypectomy is performed. Uh, by colonoscopy, and pathology shows a T1 cancer. If there's a 2 millimeter clear margin, the polyp is well differentiated, there's no vascular or lymphatic invasion, there's nothing else to do, just continue surveillance. But if any of those are violated, the patient needs colon resection. Overall screening recommendations for colorectal cancer is, in general, colonoscopy starting at 50 years of age from normal risk patients, 40 years of age or 10 years before the youngest case if there's a family history. And there are exceptions to that generic rule, just like we listed in the hereditary colon cancer syndrome section. Low rectal villus adenomas with atypia, uh, in general, transanal resection if possible. APR only if cancer is present. Now, if pathology shows a T1 lesion after a transanal excision for a villus polyp, there's no need for further resection as long as we obtain two millimeter margins and there's no vascular or lymphatic invasion. But if there is lymphatic invasion, 
or we weren't able to get two millimeter margins, we need to do an APR and LAR. Now, if there's a T2 lesion after a transanal polypectomy for a villous polyp, we need to go ahead and do an APR and LAR. So those are the headlines from the Abcite Smackdown Review Book and the colorectal section. Hope you find it useful as you go through your day and you study for your Abcite. And as my colleagues at the podcast say, uh, the Project Smackdown team, uh, best of luck to you and hashtag Abcite Smackdown. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at absitesmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.